Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and this talk will be on a very interesting topic, something that probably most of you aren't doing, but something we hardly ever did, but now we do a lot of, and that kind of sounds complicated, but is CT cystography. And uh, this is actually based on an exhibit we had at RSNA 2007, and hopefully you'll see this impressed in the near future. So traditionally, uh, cystography was, the, uh, was done for many different conditions. It was done in the trauma situation. It was done looking for fistulae. It was done for post-surgical change, post-surgical leak. But uh, we've noticed, of course, and many have, that CT is an ideal study. Now, in saying this, most of the work looking at the bladder with CT in terms of cystography was in the trauma scenario where you knew that CT was indeed very good and had replaced conventional studies and of course can be done very conveniently in the trauma center. One of the things we learned of course in that scenario is if you're going to do CT of the bladder it was not enough to give IV contrast and wait for the bladder to distend. You would miss a lot of injuries. To really get a good look at the bladder you need to have a dedicated study where you put contrast in the bladder um, you can use air for select applications, but typically contrast is the way you want to go. Now, you also can do CT cystography for looking at tumors, and we'll do that a different time. We'll talk about tumors, but let's talk about non-neoplastic conditions. Let's talk about trauma, fistulous tracts, which may be post-op or due to diverticulitis, for example. And it's not just using axial images, but the combination of NPR and 3D imaging is going to be very, very helpful. And so in this presentation, we're going to look at some of the techniques of CT cystography. We're going to look at various applications and discuss basically how we do it on a daily basis. So typically, we'll do it on a 64-slice scanner, and we'll go with the thin collimators, 0.6 collimators, 0.75 millimeter slice thickness, reconstructed at 0.5. So we're having isotropic data sets. Scan parameters, you're through the pelvis, so you need to have a little bit higher dose to get good quality, but typically 120 kV and 150 to 200 MAS, depending on the patient. Now, what you want to do, as I mentioned a moment ago, is distend the bladder. So we put a small Foley catheter in the bladder, and then we drip contrast under gravity into the bladder. Now, how do you do it? Very simple. Perfect solution is take a 500 cc bag of normal saline, Add 30 cc's of Omnipec 350, shake it a couple times, mix it up nicely, and then hook it up and let it drain in through gravity. That works very nicely, regardless of the application. Uh, what we'll typically do is we'll then initially scan the patient without any contrast in the bladder, scan them with maximum distension, and then drain the bladder and rescan the patient. Some things show best, sometimes small perforations on the delayed scans, but most of the time, it's that image with the bladder well distended that shows you the fistula and shows you uh, very nicely any perforation or extravasation. Um, in terms of minimum and maximum, I guess I'd be concerned about theoretically perforating the bladder but with gravity it makes life simple and typically you'll get in three or four hundred cc's and that indeed works very nicely. So um, it's something to, in a very easy protocol to use. Now, since we do have thin sections, we'll send it to the workstation. We'll use a combination of multiplanar reconstruction, particularly the sagittal reconstruction works well, and then volume rendering. I will, of course, look at the axial imaging, but the combination of these two techniques, indeed, is a very simple way of doing things. Now, if you consider bladder rupture, most common causes of bladder rupture are trauma, and typically it's associated with blunt or penetrating trauma, but most of the time, it's basically related to 
uh, non-penetrating trauma in our experience, an auto accident, when the patient typically has multiple pelvic fractures. It's rare to see a bladder injury in the absence of pelvic trauma with fractures. When you see fractures, you indeed have to worry. Now, it's possible to have other causes of bladder rupture, somebody who's getting a cystoscopy from radiation, theoretically from a diverticulum that perforated, or just maximum distension of a bladder, patient who had a little too much to drink, um, and then has very minor trauma, you can theoretically have bladder rupture. But most of the time, we talk about trauma. When you talk about bladder rupture, you talk about two types, intraperitoneal and extraperitoneal, with extraperitoneal being about 65% of cases. With intraperitoneal bladder rupture, uh, what happens is uh, these are the patients where surgical repair is required. Uh, extraperitoneal ruptures are typically treated with catheter drainage and you do not need to operate. So this extraperitoneal versus intraperitoneal is indeed very important. Remember, intraperitoneal, you're going to outline the bowel loops, so you know it's intraperitoneal, but it does have a major impact. Occasionally, you will have combinations of intra and extraperitoneal, and those are treated as if they're intraperitoneal which, with surgery. Now, CT is very accurate for diagnosing a bladder rupture in patients with acute trauma. There have been a number of articles. Quiglin had an article which basically showed that the sensitivity and specificity uh, was 95 and 100% respectively versus basically the same numbers for conventional cystography. Remember, we speak about lower dose with CT, but also the fact the patient is on the table already getting that rest of the CT scan, so you're really decreasing the dose because you're looking at the pelvic fractures, you're looking for potential vascular injury, at the same time you're looking for bladder injury, so that indeed can work very nicely. Now, with intraperitoneal rupture, what you see is extravasation of contrast into the peritoneal cavity, and you see it going around bowel loops, you see it in mesenteric folds, you see it in the paracolic gutters, it kind of travels the way you think about ascites. It travels all around, can travel between liver and diaphragm, all depends how much uh, urine there is or how much contrast there is. Now with extraperitoneal rupture, it's typically seen as a collection of contrast confined to the extraperitoneal perivesical space. Um, it, can, it tracks downward pretty well defined, it's not moving across uh, bowel loops for example. Uh, so it's very important to make that distinction, but those are the two major factors. Now, besides uh, trauma, we talk about fistulas, and the thing we typically would speak about in the past most commonly were colovesical fistulas. Those are the most common fistulas, colovaginal fistulas. We've written about both of them. Remember, prior to CT, colovaginal fistulas, colovesical fistulas, very poorly detected. With CT, for example, colovesical fistulas you detect better than 95% of the time. Well, when you talk about fistulae, you talk about communications between the bladder and adjacent organs can be due to pelvic inflammation, can be due to malignancy, prior surgery, radiation therapy, or iatrogenic causes. And uh, again, many different studies have been done, but CT is particularly accurate for vesicoenteric, vesicovaginal, and vesicourinary, and uh, vesicourine fistulae. And again, it not only shows the presence of fistula, but shows extent, and this information can easily be used for surgical planning. So indeed, it's very, very important uh, to be able to have that information. Uh, 
We also at times will able to detect if there's reflux of contrast at the ureter, what exactly is going on. But even the smallest fistulous tracts, you can see again this isotropic data set and looking things at multiple planes. Axial is just not often good enough. It's really doing other planes as well that indeed becomes very critical. Now the acquired vesicovaginal fistulae is an, un, uh, is an unexpected often complication uh, and provides difficult management decisions. Etiologies can be from OB complications to pelvic malignancies to radiation therapy to IBD to iatrogenic causes. Uh, these days the most common cause will be a GYN surgery. Patients with vesicovaginal fistula usually present with continuous incontinence. Uh, though, although some will have a vaginal discharge and will not be complaining quite as much. In patients with vesicovaginal fistulae, CT can demonstrate the accumulation of contrast material in the vagina as well as in the fistulous tract. We also can detect changes associated with the fistulae as to its primary cause, be it a continuous mass, be it radiation therapy, be it adjacent thickened bowel loops. So we have really the full extent, which again will be very helpful for surgical planning. Antrovesical fistulae may be caused by various inflammatory diseases or neoplastic diseases. Diverticulitis is surely the most common. Radiation, carcinoma, Crohn's, ruptured appendix all do occur, but substantially uh, lower in terms of numbers. Um, I've seen a couple cases of Crohn's disease fistulizing to the bladder. That's typically on the right side of the bladder. When you have it from diverticulitis, it's typically on the left side or superior. Uh, things we will see, of course, if you give, um, in the past we used to give rectal contrast, and then we would look for air in the bladder in the absence of catheterization. We look for a pacification of the fistulous tract. We look for thickening of the bladder. Now, uh, when you're putting contrast in the bladder, you look for bladder wall thickening. You look for contrast going from the bladder into a fistulous tract. You look at contrast going into the patient's colon. And again, one can argue what's the best way of doing it, rectal contrast, versus putting contrast in the bladder. But one thing, if you're looking for colovesical fistula, don't do both, because then it's massively confusing and you're not going to be very successful. So one or the other works very nicely. When we talk about vesicocutaneous fistulae, uh, history there is a big, uh, you know, a big part of it, of course. Complicated injuries, pelvic fractures, radiation therapy, post-op changes, and occasionally large bladder calculi can all be the cause. Vesical ureteral fistula may also be associated with uh, surgery, inflammation, and ischial ulcerations. And again, the CT is very good at defining the full extent. Now, one of the things we have seen more of is complications post-op. So sometimes you see post-op complications, patient had prostate surgery, colon surgery, bladder surgery, you see fluid in the pelvis, you're not certain what it is. Again, PO contrast, IV contrast, waiting around, sometimes will show you the exact site of the fistulae, but often will not because things aren't under pressure, and so the leaks may be very, very hard to see. For example, an open prostatectomy, the incidence of leak was reported to be between 4 and about 30%, but most of them were small leaks. With robotic prostatectomy, uh, it's about 13%, uh, with the majority being mild or moderate, and limited to extraperitoneal space, but some patients often will have the intraperitoneal space. And we've seen a number of robotic prostatectomies with intraperitoneal extravasation of contrast material. So again, something very important to look at. 
Post-surgical evaluation of the bladder. Urine leaks occur in about uh, up to 5% of renal transplant patients after anastomosis. Most leaks are at the distal ureter, possibly as a result of necrosis due to ischemia or rejection, or at the ureteroneocystoscomy site related to surgery. So again, these are all very good situations, very important things to be able to look at. Again, something... Uh, there are a number of other factors. I've put some references in here, and you could read this on your own. In patients with bladder surgery, such as partial cystectomy and closure or bladder extrophy, it's not surprising to see bladder leaks. Now, let's look at some examples. Here's a series of images very nicely showing you intraperitoneal rupture of the bladder in a patient with a history of refractory hemorrhagic cystitis. Patients who have cystitis, particularly hemorrhagic cystitis, and you scope the patient, or you just put a foley in, forget scoping, just put a foley in, and the nurse is too aggressive, this is what you end up with. Look at that perforation. In the bladder itself, what you're seeing is a very large blood clot. Or this case, spontaneous intraperitoneal rupture of a large bladder diverticulum. Again, beautiful visualization. You can see it's ruptured, common causes of rupture, trauma, could have been an obstructing stone, distension, this uh, patient had a neurogenic bladder and BPH, so you can see where that obstructive phenomenon would occur and the place where it's weakest would be the site of rupture. Here's a good example of vesicovaginal fistula. Bladder's well opacified, beautifully seen sagittal view, though the axials show you the contrast in the vagina as well, but such a nice detail where the communication is. Again, easy for surgical planning. You know exactly what's going on. Or in this case, vesicovaginal fistula. Again, you do see the contrast in the vagina, but look how nicely you can see its relationship to the bladder. So sagittal views are particularly wonderful in this regard, and you can see it the same way in this um, next example, very much the same process where uh, you can see very nicely the fistula. And you can see in this case, this is the same as the prior case, we've now had the patient void and sometimes on voiding, you will see those lower fistula a little better. I think it's that procedure, the process of, uh, of just avoiding that does make you see things very nicely at times. Here's a good example of diverticulitis. Could this be a bladder cancer? The answer would be yes, but you see the track with air and you follow it right to the colon. That's a classic left side superior diverticulitis with colovesical fistula. Another example, vesicocutaneous fistula. Again, you see the c communication between the dome of the bladder to the muscle, to the abdominal wall, to the skin. Again, sagittal views are particularly excellent in this scenario. Another case, urethrocutaneous fistula to the ischial decubitus ulcer in a patient with paraplegia and chronic decubitus ulcers. Now that's a mouthful, but there it is, sure enough. You see that fistula, it's going right to the decubitus. Again, you can see the cubidi erode into bladder. That's been commonly, or at least not uncommonly, reported. Now, in patients with robotic-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy, very nice example in this case, you can see where the urethra comes in right at the base there. You can see the extravasation. In this case, the extravasation is going to be extraperitoneal, as opposed to this case with intraperitoneal. And this was from a neobladder. Again, you can see it outlining bowel loops. You can see it's tracking in, kind of following ascites. And the fluid in the abdominal cavity is basically all urine. Or this example, post-renal transplant, looking for possible leak. And there it is very nicely. And just like we said before, 
Most common site of leak is where the anastomosis of the ureter is to bladder. Very nicely shown in that regard. Another example, a status post-simultaneous pancreas and renal transplants with perivesical fluid. And here it is very nicely. Cystography was performed to look for potential leak. Uh, and you could see that in this case, we don't see evidence of a leak. We do see in this case communication um, of the duodenal uh, vesicle anastomosis, but there's no evidence of leak. So again, I think the numbers are pretty high. It's probably 99%. If you do the study correctly and you don't see a leak, there's no leak present. Or this case, patient with bladder atrophy, patient had recent trauma, does the patient have rupture? Uh, the answer is, you know, we don't see any. There's no evidence of extravasation. At surgery, the patient has small bladder perf, but uh, again, we're not clear this was from the patient's uh, trauma. Another example, bladder laceration, patient extensive surgery, very nice contrast extravasation. So many different reasons, but each of them, the same protocol, the same techniques. People often ask, do you do supine and prone? No, we only do supine. We do some non-contrast scans early. Ideally, if you're doing a CT cystography study, don't give the patient PO contrast. That can confuse things, so don't do that. Concluding then, CT cystography is a fast and accurate technique for evaluating the bladder, whether it's bladder rupture, whether it's leak or fistulae, locally or to adjacent organs. The key is adequate distension of the bladder to be able to define this complication. And using 3D and NPR images, particularly the sagittal image, rather than the axials only is critical for picking up the presence of fistulae, but defining their extent, as well as the area's involvement, it becomes very critical for surgical preoperative planning. It becomes very critical for how you manage that patient. And with that, I'll be happy to stop and uh, conclude this talk and just give you a series of references that you indeed might find helpful. And someday, sometime, we'll be back and we'll look at malignancies and how we evaluate the bladder. Thanks very much.